I will tell you a version of what I told you then, um, <laughs> the way that I remember it now. And what I'll say is that I spent 10 days in the, the hills of India uh, on a silent retreat, uh, commonly known as a, commonly, I don't know how common this is, but it's known as a vipassana, where you just don't talk. Commonly. <laughs> yeah, you don't talk for days and you meditate for eight hours of those days. And um, I was at this beautiful, you know, small ashram. And uh, I'll just say that it <laughs> it was very, very hard. By the fourth day, I was losing my mind on the inside uh, because you just you just don't talk. You don't. There's no outlet the way that you're used to having an outlet. Um, you kind of swear off books and and external stimulation mm. at all. Um, you really do. The, the focus of it is to go inside and to kind of breathe through and out. Um, all of the things, right, that live inside of us from day to day to kind of uncover what's there uh, at the end of it. And so I was walking at night to the evening meditation, and it may have been day eight at this point. So I was on the back end of this um, experience and, and maybe feeling, I won't ever use the word comfortable in it, um, but a little bit more familiar with um, where my brain was at at that time. And I think it was one of the first times where the stars were just fully out and so was the moon and it was just so beautiful. Um, and I think because I had cleared so much space in my soul at that point, I just was able to stop and appreciate it at this level that I don't think I was capable of doing before. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, you know, the the stars that are here right now, like that I see that are so brilliant to me and having this impact on me now are always there. They're always there. No matter if it's daylight or nighttime or cloudy or whichever. Um, but I can only see them when there isn't light pollution. And I can only see them when the clouds aren't in the way. And I can only see them when the sky is dark um, for the most part. And, and what that meant to me and what I wrote in my journal at the time is that the conditions need to be right to see things that are always there, to uncover um, the things that, that don't go away. Um, but maybe you just don't know them in the moment. And again, it was one of those existential life lessons that blew my mind at the time to, so <laughs> to realize. So good. And it's so simple and it's so universally true. And I, because you told that to me and in that moment, it was so true and it probably meant something completely different, but there is this universal truth that is always being told and you told it to me and it was so beautiful. It was so life changing that my condition just needed to be right in order for me to see the things that always have been there. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Shaka Laka. <laughs> hey friends, this is Mark and you are listening to the Mark Explains Podcast. On today's podcast, we get to talk to one of my great friends, Brandy. She is an outdoor adventure guide out west. She lives in Arizona. And this is just a human with so much depth and density. I know you're going to find this conversation so riveting on so many levels. She has been all around this world and brings so much light and 
depth into this conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening today. Enjoy this podcast. Okay. So I can remember this one time, a long, long time ago, circa 2015, actually. Um, I was post-divorce by like three months. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it vividly that I was coming down from just the entire world around me kind of falling apart. Um, everything that I thought that I knew, um, everything was just kind of fallen to pieces. I was living in this apartment by myself, and then this roommate, Nick, came, and he moved in. Oh, Nick, if you're listening, such a good dude. Love you, bro, so much. And he was like, yo, let's just go out for a night on the town. I believe this was March 24th. Circa 2015. <laughs> um, and April. It would have been April. April 24th. Circa. That's why I said Circa. Because that's what that yeah. means, I think. Um, <laughs> and uh, I decided to go and dance. And dance all my problems away. So we went to Dublin Bar in East Lansing, Michigan. And there was a band playing. And the band was Star Farm. And it, they are this 80s cover band. And, oh, they just hit every tone in my body that night and I don't even remember the song I think it was actually Whitney Houston's Oh I Wanna Dance With Somebody (laughs) came on and I lost it only person on the dance floor just getting it just letting it all hang out and then this wild soul came flying onto the dance floor and into my life and we just danced it was wasn't really anything that I, we planned. We were just dancing, and then she stops and she's like, "Hey, what's your name?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I'm Mark." And then she was like, "Oh, well, I'm Brandy." And then we just kept dancing, and that was the whole conversation. And then the entire night transpired, and it ended up being this incredible soul that uh, we are having on today. So, what is up, Brandy Rose? How are you? I can't see you. You can't see me? I can see you. No. Oh, that's so funny. How about now? No, I can't see you. Oh, I see you now. (laughs) So what's up, Brandy? Oh, hi. Oh, hi. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Technical technical difficulties. (laughs) We're we're newbies at this. I have no idea what I'm doing. But we're drinking wine, and I'm I'm eating uh, uh, yogurt-covered pretzels. Oh, Sweet heavenly Jesus, these things. Oh, those are so good. I can't believe that you chose the white chocolate over the dark chocolate. Well, it's though. white yogurt chocolate. It's not just white chocolate. I like milk the, I like, chocolate all day. <laughs> I like the dark chocolate too, but I can have more of these. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to. I'm yes. sorry if you're recording. No, I'm not. I don't have any plans. Okay. You know, I think that we began this conversation uh, with some talks about what we're made of, you know, from the very, like, beginning, most fundamental, you know, things that make us up and make up everything. And um, without (laughs) running the risk of having a clunky transition here, right, what we're made of and what we're made for um, are two really interesting concepts for me and things that I like to explore, right? Like the, the study of being, this ontology. Um, and what we're made for 
it's a really big conversation that can be taken in a lot of directions. But um, one that I think has, or a concept that I think has really driven my exploration of self is this concept of dharma, um, which roughly translated means, you know, your purpose or how you're meant to realize your life. Um, and, you know, we've got some notes here that there was a man who lived in the ninth century at the risk again of butchering this name. Uh, I believe it's pronounced Ching, Ching Yuen Huisen. Um, that was really good. Oh man, right here. You know I'm, gonna... I'm not going to lie. I Googled it and listened to the pronunciation a couple of times. <laughs> right now I'm going to clip in. I'm going to clip in the other time I tried to say it. Quinian Weeksen. And I have no idea if I'm saying that right or not. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> cr- cr- crushed, crushed it. <laughs> yep. We're laughing at Nailed myself it. right there. Yeah. So he you know, declare that there were three stages of his understanding of dharma or, you know, life purpose, how you're meant to realize your life again. So um, in the first stage, he used this example of talking about um, a landscape. So seeing a mountain and then seeing a river and then seeing those things just as they are. The mountain is a mountain and the river is a river. Um, In the second stage, uh, it breaks down to where the mountain is no longer a mountain and the river is no longer a river. And the third stage is then that the mountain becomes a mountain again. And then the river becomes a river again. Now, what does that actually mean? Right? Like when I, when I think about that and I read those words, I'm like, great, that sounds cool. But, um, how does a mountain become not a mountain and then become a mountain again? Hmm. And I think it's starting to get into maybe the, the in-between conversations here that get really interesting. So, Hmm. For me, um, it's about trying to figure out what is a fixed thing, right? When I reflect on my own life, what do I think is fixed? What do I think is certain? Um, Like a mountain that I can see and feel and clearly it's that. Mm. Um, And then, you know, we have these situations sometimes in our lives that completely deconstruct. We talked a little bit about deconstructing. Um, So what does it look like in your life when something that you thought you were so sure about suddenly you're not sure about anymore. Something as Uh, sure as a mountain, something as sure as a Mm. mountain, something that was a fundamental piece of your life that you thought you were certain about something that you knew that you knew. You know, my journey through college caused me to really begin to ask a lot of questions about the Bible that I had never really asked before And it really began to break down my reality of what the Bible was. And this was the mountain in my life, the Bible, my faith, my religion. These questions I felt just lived in my soul, but I just never had the words to express them or the understanding in order to articulate them. So these questions like were like, what about the dinosaurs? Or did they not exist? They're nowhere in the Bible. What about the morality of God? That according to the Bible, he killed over 2 million men in the Old Testament alone. And that's not including women and children. And this also doesn't even include when he wiped out the whole world with a flood. And mind you that Satan only killed 11 people. And that was only found in the book of Job. And that also was with God's permission. So what about the morality of God? What about the different accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2? What about the different accounts of the history of Israel in the books that are right next to each other? 
What about the fact that the Gospels were not even written by the authors? But they were written decades after all of them had died, realistically. What about in Mark 16, which was, in fact, the first gospel that was written? If you go there, you'll see a little asterisk, and it'll say, it literally says this in your Bible. You can go and pull it out. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. So Mark 16 verse goes up to verse 8. Then 9 through 20 is all made up. And this is the first and most relevant account of the resurrection of Jesus. This was the first gospel written, and it was well understood that it was a common thing during all those times for the authors to kind of refer to the other transcripts in order to complete their writing. And it literally says that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have these verses where Jesus rose from the dead. It literally made this shit up as they went. For me... This is when the river was no longer a river and the mountain was no longer a mountain. The questions became far too overwhelming. And my reality, the lens in which my life was constructed, it just no longer worked. These questions, what I was sold growing up no longer worked. And this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to let go was when I lost my faith, the day I lost God. So tell me a little bit about um, who you were, uh, like what your life was like um, back when you were married, back, I mean, this is going to be a while ago. So what, what, what year did you get married? Like, like, tell me a little bit about that, Brandy. Yeah, so I'm going to have to re-enter this different compartment in my brain, as you kind of said before. Um, I, I was with my ex-husband from 2008 when we met until uh, we divorced in 2015, April of 2015. We were officially married in uh, 2011. Uh, It was very selfish, actually. I think it came from a really selfish place um, where I, I just wanted to feel the way that I wanted to feel. And looked for something to fill that space for me. So I had a lot of healing to do, I think, at that time. Actually, no, I don't think. I had a lot of healing to do at that time. And I think that I used love um, or the the image of being married and in a happy marriage to um, somehow make it mm, just part of that process for me where I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew what I felt. And I thought that I... I don't know. I thought that if I had this thing, then I, I would be better. <laughs> um, but that all unraveled, right? So when the mountain becomes not the mountain and the river becomes not the river, what does that look like? Did you know that the mountain was falling apart and, and the river was becoming no longer a river while you were still in it? Absolutely. Um, but I was terrified of that transformation. I didn't really know how to approach it. And I mean, when you're in a, when you're in a a relationship, right, there's more than one party involved. So of course, even though I was a very selfish human at that time, I think I also was um, afraid of the impact that I would have on the person that I was in that relationship with too, you know, I mean. But then you moved away. But then 
And this is the part of the story that is so interesting to me. And not that your story wasn't interesting before, but like technically, so no one questions a mountain when you look at it. Like no one says, Mm. is that a mountain? No, it's just, it's there. But when it all comes crashing down, when you lose everything and I see, I like, I met you and you were literally losing everything. And I've never seen someone so at peace with loss because you weren't losing yourself. You were in the stages of unlearning what the mountain was told to look like and what it should look like and what it should feel like. And you were discovering that it was just this, it was this hill that you were told to stand on and and you were told that this is what the mountain is for your whole life. And you went running from that and diving and crashing and you found new rivers and you scraped knees and bloody knuckles the whole way. And next thing you know, you're climbing what is really the true mountain in your life. And now you're beginning to reshape that. Um, in this new phase in your life, but it's that that restructuring phase when, when the the second the second stage of Dharma, when the mountain is no longer the mountain and the river is no longer the river, you kind of took that and said, "Fuck everything, I'm out of <laughs> here," and you flew to the other side of the world and literally deconstructed your entire life. I mean, how radical is that? You saw how many countries? I traveled to nine countries in that time. How, uh, between... how, many, how many plane flights did you have in one year alone? Oh, my gosh. I actually kept a record of it in my phone in the notes section, each flight. And I can't recall it off the top of my head, but I'm going to say that it's upwards of 40. Um, just you know, international and then domestic flights inside of the countries that I was in. But it doesn't mean that I wasn't moving when I wasn't flying. I took (laughs) more train rides and local bus rides and tuk-tuk rides and, you know, things like that um, across those countries than than planes, actually, because those were the less expensive ones. That's what allowed me to stay out there longer, was finding (laughs) the more resourceful way of getting around. Man, how how incredible is that? And I feel like that's it's not where your story begins but it's where this big kind of bookmark this chapter in your life kind of turns over and it's not just a page i feel like it was almost like there is a seam there and that's kind of where you kind of go back and you say no this is where this is where i kind of go back to read my story like the story before this sets it up and your your story till then is beautiful because it got you to that point but that's when the life began. That's when the blood started pumping and your heart started beating. And that's when your story truly begins is when you, when you lose everything. And a lot of people don't see that. A lot of people are so afraid to lose the mountain and they're so afraid to lose the river and you embraced it. I I met a lot of people and you know you keep referring back to what does it look like when this mountain is a shape and when this river is a shape uh when it's undone on purpose and i think that sometimes we have to kind of bulldoze the building in order to rebuild on on that same plot or you know whether or not you even get rid of the foundation um for me though when you 
when we talked this morning and you kind of told me a little bit about this theme or the, you know, the quote that you were thinking about sharing, the, the thing that kept running through my head over and over again and still is, is that regardless if the mountain and the river are constructed or deconstructed, the, the same elements are there. What they mm. originate from still exist. So the earth is still the earth and the water is still the water, whether it flows in the same spots or not. And, so you know, good. for me, it was that even though the mountain may not look like a mountain anymore, what made it up, the dirt, the grit, the the things that were inside of it were still there at the surface or wherever they were. And I just needed to learn where and how to reshape them and how I wanted it to look. So I tried to put a lot of choice into those um, moments to say, do I want it to look like this kind of a mountain or do I want it to look like this kind of valley? Do I want it to look like a ravine? And and even now, I live in the Grand Canyon state, and I, I think about it now where the earth is still the earth, but it doesn't go upwards, it goes in. And it's, um, you know, it's still comprised of those same materials. It just looks different. It doesn't mean that it's easy. And, and then it doesn't mean that it makes sense. Even though you know things, I think that's the thing. Like, it doesn't need to make sense. You know something that doesn't make any sense at all. It's completely radical and outside of the box. And and it means that maybe you'd have to change and shift everything about you. Um, but the origins are still there and the dirt is still there. And the mountain that you think, <laughs> that you know, it is, it is still there. Um, MC Yogi once said, I want to Wait, are be... you quoting MC Yogi right now? Yes, I am. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Raise the roof. I'm quoting MC Yogi. He, he once said, uh, I want to be both soft and strong. And I think that it's this really two things that seem so dichotomous in nature but it's so important to understand that our lives are not filled with um, ors, but they're filled with ands. And you you don't have to be soft or strong, but you can be soft and strong. And he said, I want to have a soft heart, but have a strong core. And I think that that's what you were talking about when you say turning inward. It's you turn inward to the softness, but you also are turning into the strongness. And that's so vital in, in the forward momentum and the forward moving. And also in order to help someone else out, you not only have to be strong sometimes, but you need to be soft because they need to hear you, but then they also need to lean on you. Yeah. And I'm going to go very basic yogi on you right now and, and tell you that when I say going inward, you know, yes, it means to recognize and be conscious of the, the softness and the strongness. Um, but it also means this ability to listen from the observational standpoint. So one of the very first, I guess, and monumental mm, like things that I learned when I first started to follow this yogic practice, whether or not that's what everybody does, was that who's listening to the thoughts that I think? Who's the listener? When I think a thought, whether it's, oh, I'm hungry right now, or, oh, is my life falling apart? From the most simple thing to the most, you know, existential thing, 
what who's actually listening to that and when i realize that i'm the listener and not the thinker um that to me was the the essence of going within and, and figuring out who is doing the chatter who is chattering all of these things in my brain right now while i'm listening to them because I'm the I'm the observer. I'm I'm like the pinky in the brain driving the wheelhouse, right? Like if you can, who's old enough out there to know? Like pinky, pinky in the, the brain, 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 right? There's like this little guy inside of the head driving it, right? Like, but the body is not the person driving the head. And for me, it was realizing that maybe I'm the one behind behind the gears. You know, I'm I'm the listener. I'm not the thinker. So. Um, what does that mean? You know, in the early 1500s, uh, this was before what, what, what would be called the Enlightenment. Now there was like the Dark Ages, um, but right after the Dark Ages and before the Enlightenment, there was uh, virtually everyone believed the earth was flat. Um, now this was coming around in the 1500s, I guess, um, there were boats going around, so they were figuring out that the world wasn't as flat as they thought it was. Um, uh, but they also thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, and there's no reason to not think that, um, you know, because if you look up, everything circles kind of circumvents you in the sky. Everything kind of rotates at the same pace. So it would make sense that the Earth is the center of the universe. It really is. Uh, it really did. Until a Polish scientist named uh, Nicholas Copernicus, and this is one of my favorite scientists of all times, he proposed that the planets instead revolved around the sun that was in the sky. And now in Copernicus's lifetime, I mean, everyone believed literally that the Earth was at the center of the universe, that it was geocentric, and that the sun and the stars, everything revolved around us. Um, but one of the glaring mathematical problems was this uh, this model that the planets on occasion would travel backwards across the sky. And I know you know what this is called. No? <laughs> no. It's when Mercury is in... Retrograde. Sir. Retrograde. <laughs> yes. And what this oh is, <laughs> what this is, is the planets, they go backwards across the sky. And if you can kind of imagine... Uh, the sun kind of going across your point of view from right to left and Mercury is really close to it. And Mercury kind of rotates in front of, in front of the, the sun, like kind of in between you and the sun. And it's going in the same direction as the sun from right to left. And then it'll go behind the sun as it goes around it. And for a second, it's going backwards because it's going around the sun as the sun travels across the sky and so this is what retrograde is it's when these planets travel backwards across the sky but these mathematical problems we couldn't figure out these astronomers called this this motion retrograde and to account for it based on the greek astronomers and mathematicians view um, they incorporated these number of circles within circles and um, ellipses and within the planet's path and it just didn't make it didn't make sense. Um, it's uh, some planets like Mars even had as many as seven circles, creating this really, really cumbersome model that that felt way too complicated. I mean, nature is is beautiful and simple most of the time, 
um, and elegant. And uh, then in 1514, Copernicus came along and he distributed this handwritten book to all of his friends um, uh, that set out uh, his view of the universe. And he proposed that in the center of the universe was not Earth, but it was the sun, that it was heliocentric. And he suggested that the Earth's rotation also accounted for the rising and the setting of the sun and the movement of the stars and the cycle of the seasons. And finally, he corrected, uh, he correctly proposed that the Earth's motion through the space caused the retrograde motion of the planets across the sky. And he finished this book, he finished the first manuscript in 1532, and it was called um, On Revolutions of Heavenly Spheres. I that's just the coolest name of a book of this manuscript. Um, and he laid out his model of the entire solar system and the path of the planets. And, uh, but he was scared to publish it. Um, and he, he didn't even publish it until two months before he died in 1953. And uh, um, you see, for, for Copernicus, there came a point where the river was no longer a river, where the earth was no longer flat, where the planets were no longer circumventing the earth, even though that's what literally everyone had said for all of history. Every history book at the time, the way everyone described it, it just didn't work for him. The mountain was no longer a mountain and the river was no longer the river. The star exploded in his life and it gave birth to something new. There came a point where there was a better understanding of the world and it painted a new picture of this light. And just because something doesn't work anymore, it doesn't mean that everything won't work. He knew the current model was outdated. So he proposed a better one, one that worked with the new understanding that is around us. You know, it's important to remember that just because something doesn't work doesn't mean everything won't work. And and that the maybe the model you have, the thing that you once knew, it got you to where you are. And that's a really important that's a really important fact to remember through all of this is I know for me, a lot of the things that revolved around it for me were like of the Bible. Uh, when the Bible fell apart, I had a lot of anger towards that and towards my parents. Um, but it's important to remember that all of these all of these deconstructions, all of these stories all of these mini stories, they led you to where you are now. And sometimes we have to ditch our current models because they no longer work. And that is an okay thing because it brought us to where we are. It's kind of like using an old map. Like Brandy, I want you to think about like an old, old, like an old, old timey map. Like Mm -hmm. the, the guy that's using it has like the old timey mustache. (laughs) <laughs> and a pipe. <laughs> I almost just did a pirate accent. I don't know why. <laughs> That's not accurate. Um, but like the like, let's just say these old timey maps. Let's say from like the 1400s. They're not accurate. We know they're not. But it got sailors from one place to another. You know, it can get you a long ways, even if you know it's wrong. It can get you kind of where you're going. And so it's important not to throw away ideas, especially old ones that you had. It's important not to throw those away because it got you where you are. And that's a really, really important thing and a really important aspect in this in this deconstruction. And I feel like I can even relate some of what you just said 
um, again, back to Dharma, right? Um, so in the example of Copernicus, um, realizing that the model that he had been working with about, um, you know, the stars and what revolves around what, if he was really attached to that model, he would have never been able to, you know, evolve <laughs> into what he was meant to do, what he was mm. meant to discover. Um, the, the discovery that led to what we were able to understand about the stars now and the way that they revolve. Mm. Um, and, you know, the point to some of this Dharma talk, um, and one of my favorite things out of the book, it's a book by Stephen Cope uh, called The Great Work of Your Life, and it's um, kind of his understanding of, in a, you know, an ancient text, the Bhagavad Gita, um, that's a story about Krishna and Arjuna, and uh, I'm not going to go into all of that, but essentially uh, Krishna says during some part of this that there are, you know, four essential what stages, uh, perhaps stage isn't the right word to use, but pillars, I guess, of discovering your dharma and or to fulfilling it. You, you know, you look to what that is. So let's say that you think your purpose is to um, work with animals or, you know, do humanitarian types of efforts um, to, you know, countries or communities that are in need of something. Or maybe it's to be a mother or maybe it's to... Um, whatever it is, you know, look to that thing, that thing that pulls you. I feel that, you know, um, the thing deep down that, that pulls you towards it. And, and once you discover what that is, you do it full out, right? So for Copernicus, he knew like this star stuff, this is me, like, this is what I'm going to put my efforts mm. towards. I'm going to do it full out. Just put yourself in it and, and trust, um, you know, that, that discovering that and fulfilling that will save you. Um, mm. And the third part of that is to let go of the fruits. So don't chase after the thing that your dharma produces, whether that's money or feelings of joy, or um, you know, if you're you know a parent and you really want your child to go to what you know the same university and be this very amazingly successful person, like of course all parents probably want for their children is for them to be successful or happy or whatever, but let go of the fruits mm. of whatever your Dharma is that, that, pro, that produce from it. And, and then you're free. Mm. <laughs> so do the thing that you are meant to do all the way without worrying about what it's going to produce for you. Um, and I think that, you know, going back to this conversation about, this mountain is a mountain and the river is a river and then it wasn't and all of these things is if Copernicus had been so attached to um, the fruit of the very first thing that he believed because maybe that was working for him mm, maybe he, really he didn't you know want to cause disruption in the community that he was in or the thought you know the people that were in the same kind of think tank that he was in um, and be maybe the unpopular one that had this new idea but he knew and he you know knew that he had to go after that full out you know for me in my entire life um, one of these rivers and mountains that I had was the Bible I was raised very 
very religiously. I know I've talked to you about this from time to time, a little bit about how I was raised. And I have nothing but love for my parents and for the religious establishment um, now, uh, this place that I'm at now. Um, but let me take you through just an example of one of the reasons why the mountain is no longer a mountain and the river is no longer a river because um, I was taught of I was taught a really really fundamental story and it was the story of Noah and the ark and I'm sure that you've probably heard this I know that you of course. I don't know if you were raised religious or you went to not church. really <laughs> <laughs> um, but Noah and the ark is this interesting story about how it had never rained on earth before uh, before Noah and God told Noah it's going to rain and that idea was crazy because it had never rained and so then he said build an ark and it needs to be massive um, and he told him how to build the ark in order to make it stay afloat and then he said get two of every animal on earth which is an obscene realistic uh, picture to be painted because I mean how does you know what about the animals on Madagascar and what about the animals on Australia regardless anyways um, and put all of the animals two by two um, on, on the on the ark and then it rained for 40 days and it says the waters covered even the highest peaks on earth um, so let's just kind of go through this real quick and one of the one of the main reasons why uh, this is not so much a story as, as it is a poem and why there's no physical way because I'm a scientist now um, so the largest wooden ships nowadays um, are around 350 foot long because the weight of the ship itself causes it to collapse in on itself if it's greater than about 350 foot. Um, now this boat uh, was, was longer than that and even the most modern ships are constantly pumping out water due to the porosity of the wood. So how did an arc that was a hundred foot bigger than the ones that we have these days stay afloat for 40 days. That was like one of the first questions, but then this is the question that kind of deconstructed this story for me. And one of the, like one, this is one of the, one of the fundamental uh, breakdowns I have, but this is like, as, as things were unraveling for me, this is the question I had. Um, Genesis 7:20 says that the waters submerged the world's highest mountain under 15 cubits of water. So that means that a flood, now I know that you've actually hiked this uh, uh, mountain, that a flood covered Mount Everest, which is uh, 29,000 feet tall. And actually it's getting taller every single day. Um, it covered it with 22 feet of water. So 22 feet above Mount Everest. So that's I just... pretty, that's pretty high. And <laughs> I just, I love sounding like the kind of badass that would have climbed Everest, but I cannot take that credit. Well, I went you didn't, to base camp. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't summit Everest, but you climbed right. it. I just needed to go ahead and not let myself be the girl that climbed Everest on your <laughs> you podcast. Did, you did climb Everest. You didn't summit Everest, but you climbed it. And that is very, very impressive. Um, so I decided to do the math. Uh, because, uh, you know, my math is okay. It's not stellar. Um, but I did this rough calculation. Um, so I, I had to start by assuming that the earth is a sphere, a perfect sphere, and we know that it's not, it's a bit squished. 
um, at the poles and bulges at the equator. Um, but for this experiment, we'll just uh, we'll go with that. It will suffice. And the volume of a sphere is easy to calculate. V equals four thirds pi r, um, uh, pi r cubed. And uh, the Earth has a radius of 300 or 3,959 miles. And we know, um, and we need to know the radius of the flood. And the Earth's radius plus the highest height of Everest plus 15, 15 cubits, which is 22 feet. So I hope you're following along. So we have 359 miles, the radius of the Earth, plus 29,028 feet, which is the height of Everest, plus 22 feet, which is the 15 cubits of water. It equals um, 5 point, uh, let's see, oh, I'm sorry, it equals... 3,964.5 miles. That is the radius of the flood. So if we plug these two into the radii of our volume formula, then we get the volumes of basically 259.9 billion cubic miles for the volume of the Earth, and we get 261 billion cubic miles for the volume of the flood. Uh, so then if we subtract the Earth volume from the flood volume, then we'll get the volume of water required to fill that space. It's pretty easy. Like this is pretty simple math. Um, that's how much water you would need to rain. And you would need to rain that amount of water uh, in 40 days. It turns out to be 1.08 billion cubic miles of rain in 40 days, which is pretty absurd. Now, for the estimation purposes, let's just reduce that volume by 25% because of lands and mountains and there's some there's some earth in there somewhere. And but it's that's kind of a generous, um, you know, a generous percentage, um, uh, because a lot of a lot of the earth is sea level and only 70% or only 30% is covered by earth and 70% is covered by water. But that's fine. Let's just go 25%. Uh, <clears throat> we then that would mean that there would have to be so 25 percent out of that so that that would mean there would have to be 813 million cubic miles of rain for the biblical flood to happen to put that into perspective all of the oceans only have 321 million cubic miles of water total that's that's all of the water on earth only adds up to, including all of the glaciers and all of the fresh water is only 332 million cubic miles. And this is saying that there had to be 813 cubic or 813 million cubic miles of rain in 40 days to cover the earth with that much water above Mount Everest by 22 feet. Literally, we had to multiply all of the water on Earth by 250%. I mean, to think about another way, the Atlantic Ocean is 80 million cubic miles of water. That means there would need to be 10 of those. 10 Atlantic Oceans added to the water in 40 days on this Earth. But then that rises, that raises one final point. Where did all that water go? We're looking at three times the amount of water that's on Earth needed to flood in 40 days and then where did it go see it's a fun story that has a lot of moral values that we can take away but to think this as a literal it literally cripples the merit and validity of the other stories that were told in the bible 
And that's one of the huge points when my mountain was no longer a mountain and the river was no longer a river. When I had to deconstruct this Bible, when I had to kind of look at it and say, this isn't what I was taught it was. This is something, this is something else. And so now I'm kind of at the stage where I'm beginning to reconstruct the Bible in a different way. It's, it's this book of poems and it's this book of incredible lessons and values. Because if we take this in a literal sense, it, it, it decreases the merit and the value from everything else that's in it. Because the, the Bible is literally filled with stories like this that just don't work scientifically. They don't work literally. It, but that's okay. Because it wasn't, I don't feel like this was ever meant to be taken literal. This was meant to be taken to the soul. It was meant to be taken by all the value that was given in it. Tell me about the sunrise. I want to hear the story about the sunrise. Sure. So um, at one point during my travels, I ended up in India and I was alone in Rishikesh. Um, and when I say alone again, it's, it's a loose way of saying it. There's always people around you. And I never felt like I didn't have someone within arm's reach that would have come to my door if I asked them to. Uh, but I wasn't traveling with anybody. Um, and I decided to take a tour, actually. I was like, well, you know, I think I'll try to be a tourist for the first time in a while. And I, I signed up for a river rafting tour and then a hiking tour. And we hiked. Um, it was a sunrise hike. And I went with some Vietnamese women, uh, which was really funny. They were hiking in high heels and skirts. And <laughs> I just thought they were such this this sight, right? Like I was struggling in my boots and my regular hiking pants, and they were just making this mountain look easy in their heels. Uh, but we get up to the top of this mountain, and um, we were there for sunrise. And so it was dark, and it was very, very cold. And I was not prepared with, you know, the warm clothing that I probably should have been prepared with. And I remember there being a lot of tourists around me and a lot of people taking pictures. And, um, I tried to find a small corner of the balcony that we were on that I could just kind of be alone and, um, you know, with my, my own thoughts and feelings and it got really quiet. And, and I remember specifically it was, you know, it's a tropical landscape there. Um, and the jungle started to wake up and I could hear the monkeys start to move in the trees and I could hear, you know, um, the birds starting to chirp and, you know, the, the sky around me was getting lighter. It was becoming, you know, dawn, uh, but the sun hadn't come over the mountain yet. It was a kind of a mountainous landscape in Rishikesh. Um, and I really, really wanted to see the sunrise because I wanted to be warm. I was cold. Uh, and I started to, I guess, lose my positive attitude in the moment, uh, I started to get agitated. I really just wanted the experience to hurry up. Um, and the sun started to rise and it was this tiny little sliver over the mountain pass and it, it didn't go very fast. Um, and I was still very cold. So yes, I, I <laughs> just kept finding myself wishing and wishing and wishing and wishing that it would speed up probably like this story, right? But like this story, um, you can't rush things. And I, I, I remember stepping away from that experience, kind of thinking to myself, you know, well, you can't rush the sunrise. The sun is going to take the amount of time that it takes to get to where it needs to go. And um, 
whether or not there are outside influences that want it to go faster, like myself, or slower, um, it's going to take the time that it takes. And for me, in, the, in that time in my life, uh, that was such a valuable lesson to learn uh, and to really be able to feel and apply and embody that um, sometimes it just, you need to sit and watch it happen. You need to sit and let the things that are going to occur, occur around you. And you will be warm. <laughs> you know, what you seek <laughs> is coming, but it's coming in the time that it, it's going to come. Uh, and that you, you can't always rush the process. So uh, the, the, I guess, lesson on top of that is how do, you, how do you enjoy the process, right? Like how do you be grateful for the temporary momentary cold that you feel? How do you really hear the monkeys and the birds and, and just be in that moment, regardless of the discomfort that you might feel? Um, when I think about the little lizard that lives on that rock, the rock that you were sitting on, and while you were sitting there cold, the lizard secretly had a little tiny cove that it was living in, and the body heat that you were sitting radiated from you and heated up that little cove he was living in, and he was warm for a little while, and you had no idea he, that he was there. And for that period of time that you were wishing the sun would rise quickly, he was wishing that it would rise slowly because you had no idea the effect that you were having on him. And he had no idea that his entire morning was going to be so affected by you. Hmm. And so in the same sense that you might be in a season that you're wishing the sun would rise because you are so cold and those damn monkeys won't shut up. You have no idea just the presence of where you are might be affecting someone that can't say a word to you. You have no idea the impact that you have around you. And so it's important. I think your lesson is so vital in so many ways. You can't rush to the sunrise because you have no idea how your step is affecting somebody else's first step. My deconstruction happened in 2012, 13, 14, and that's when everything kind of, that's when my, the mountain was no longer a mountain and the river was no longer a river. And now that I, after I lost everything and then I met Brandy, immediately as everything was falling apart, not a, I mean, this is not a coincidence. This is the universe, this is God, this is source, this is energy, orchestrating the exact things that I need in my life at the time that I need them. This is Brandy sitting on the rock and heating up the lizard that was dying at that moment. This, like, these are the moments when everything seems to be falling apart and literally it's being orchestrated around us all at the same time. And so I think about this mountain that is beginning to take shape now. And I think about this river that is that is beginning to, to carve a new path in the ground and beginning to take take shape. The, the spirituality, the faith that I believe now is that we are all human, that we all deserve love, that the thing that binds us and connects us is the breath that we breathe is all the same. The air that enters our lungs is literally all the same that none of us asked to be born and none of us asked for the circumstances that we were given 
and we are all worthy of complete and other utter love and acceptance from everyone that we meet which is why the hugest ethos in my life and I, I think I might have got this from you too. There's so many things I feel like I've gotten <laughs> from you is that my table is big enough for everyone that if I have extra wood in my life, then I'm not going to build my fence higher. I'm going to build my table bigger because we are all in this together. We are literally in this together and I am, I want to create unity and I want to create solidarity. I don't want to create division and there is enough of that as it is. And I feel like this is something that me and you share so deeply that this this faith that I have is is found in the this bag of skin and bones in my body. It's it's in the breath that I have. It's in me and you. It's the life that we have. That is that is my faith. That is my love because that is all I have to give. You I just, I like that I can see your face right now on Skype. I know that not everybody knows that that's going on, but it's been a long time since I've seen you. And by the way, when you speak, you inspire me. So thank you for that. Same. You inspire me. So if this is you, and if your star has imploded, scattering your reality all over the universe, if your foundation has fallen apart, and no matter what that means, just take a few seconds here with both me and Brandy. Just close your eyes. Close your eyes with me. Unless you're driving. Don't do that. It literally says unless you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. So close your eyes with me. Um, unless you're driving, then do not do that. Um, but I want you to feel the hair that's on the top of your head. And I want you to press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and I want you to place your hands on your lap unless you're driving you can do one hand and wiggle your fingers into your legs and I want you to press your toes into the ground and I want you to feel your life I want you to feel your life that you have because this is all you have this is the only story that you have it's it's beautiful this life you have, the one that is deconstructing before your eyes, it is, it's beautiful and it's sacred. So just take, take a breath right now. Take a breath and just hold it in for one second. And ask yourself, is there anything that you need to exhale? Is there any false ideals or self-degrading lies or self-harm that you need to exhale? And go ahead and breathe it in and let that shit exhale all of it out and then take another slow breath in and ask yourself is there any truth that you need to inhale to the depths of your soul this change that is happening right now it may feel like it's out of your control it may feel like your whole world is coming apart it may even feel like complete deconstruction but it is planting the seeds for something more for life far more than you could ever imagine or that seems possible because through deconstruction and through deconstruction because through destruction and deconstruction comes reemergence, and that's why we're here and I just I almost feel like I 
I want to invite people into the room with us. I want to invite people <laughs> into the conversation with us to feed it with their own personal stories about what could be going on, um, about where they're at, about where they're stuck, about where they're flowing, right? Like their stories of inspiration, their um, the ways that they got through something. Um, I think that it's just a conversation that we're all in and something that um, just feels really sacred to be able to talk to people about in a real way. Mm. Um, you know, if you're so going through this right now, I'm going to put Brandy's email in the show notes and you're going to see it right there and mine will be there too. And tell us your story. We would love to hear it. We'd love to talk to you about it because it's not like I'm any further. It's not like Brandy's any further down this road than anyone else is we're all going through this together this whole thing everything so send us your stories yeah i'd like to hear that i would love to Um, hear them and i would love to share more about the stories that we have too you know i think that there's a lot of content that um that we could get into that could open up let's do this again then some other things yeah Let's stay tuned for part two. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me, Brandy. Yeah, of course. Um, I, yeah. So much love for you. For ya. But yeah, I feel it too. I'm super grateful to be talking with you and, and having the opportunity to just blab my mouth even if it didn't make any sense it made tons Um, of sense i loved it (laughs) probably went in a million different directions and you know what that's cool because that's who i am sometimes and that's what this is yeah honest talk yeah so we could do something fun um okay like with every single guest i guess we could do something uh that I heard, I heard one time uh, a long time ago. We could do something called fake laugh, real laugh. Fake laugh, real laugh. Yeah, it's fake laugh, real laugh. So uh, what that means is we both fake laugh until one of us real laughs, and then, mm. and then whoever laughs for real loses. We're both losing right now. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Hold on, no, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this. Okay, so you have to get serious. You have to get serious, and you have to fake laugh. <laughs> you have to fake laugh until we real laugh. Okay, you ready? You ready? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Stupid. It was so stupid. Everyone that listened to that just turned off the podcast at that moment. And Are you recording still? Oh yeah, hundred percent. you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs>